0: Welcome to Casting Light, the entertainment lighting podcast. Thanks for downloading. We're talking about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We tweet at podcasting light, and you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin, and with me is my co-host, Stephanie Schechter. Stephanie, where can people find some more information about you and your work?
1: You can find me online at Stephanie Schechter on Facebook or Stephanie Schechter on LinkedIn.com.
0: Joining us today on the podcast is Marty Postma. Marty is a lighting designer, video and media designer, lighting director, and lighting programmer. He has led a lot of concerts and concert tours. He's designed for theater and dance. He's programmed concerts, feature films, and shows on cruise ships. He's designed video and media elements on productions, and he's designed and operated nightclub lighting systems. Thanks for joining us, Marty.
2: Thanks for having me. Okay. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How All right. are you today? Uh, thanks for coming straight here from the airport. What were you doing? <laughs> uh, I was actually down in Miami checking out some new lighting fixtures. Okay. So, uh, Anything you can talk about? Yeah. It's the, uh, the new Roby BMFL. Lighting, okay. Which is really very nice, actually. It's got the, uh, the, the nicest thing I can say about it. It's got the, uh, the best dimming curve I've ever seen on a moving light. The dimming curve is completely smooth on it. Uh, it stays a complete circle. You don't see any flags come in. You don't see any, uh, any claws or any teeth or anything. It stays. It looks like an incandescent dimming curve.
0: That's fabulous. Do you know what technology they're using?
2: It's, uh, it's a new flag system that they developed specifically for the light.
0: Okay. That's very exciting. Um, what's your most recent project?
2: I uh, just finished uh, the last round of this album cycle of touring with uh, Alice in Chains. Uh, came home from that two weeks ago and that concludes ob- almost 18 months on this album cycle on and off okay. with them. So
0: That's awesome. Now, how long have you been working with them?
2: Uh, let's see, it's 2014, so eight years. 2006 I started with them.
0: Okay. Um, I'd like to start by talking about some of your concert work. I mean, that's sort of what you're best known for these days. Um, strictly as designer, what are some of the standout concerts you've done?
2: Uh... There's a lot to choose from, but uh I would say some of the, the larger festivals that we've done in South America with Alice and Chain stick out. Uh most recently we did the the Rock and Rio show this time last year. Uh it was massive, massive festival that happens every year down there in Brazil. Uh, they do it a couple places in Europe as well, but it's I think it's two hundred and fifty thousand people. Uh it's just it happens on a scale like nowhere else. Okay. Uh, so that that's always a good time down there. Um Neil Young in Hyde Park was uh, another highlight. We had a special uh guest appearance by Sir Paul McCartney to come sing a, a Beatles cover at the end of the show, uh Day in the Life. So that was a that was a cool show. That was a good way. That was the end of the, the tour as well. It was the last show of the tour. It was Nice to go out on a high note. Remember okay, that? so uh,
0: in The Thing in Rio was a one-off, right? It was one-off. Yeah, it's a
2: one-off festival. So, okay. you know, loads of bands for a couple of days and massive TV rigs and massive sound rigs, multiple stages happening at the same time. Uh, just huge.
0: Okay, so you know, let's talk a little bit about, about that. And what are the challenges that are associated with uh, doing a one-off like that versus a one-off where you're the only band versus the concert tour itself?
2: Sure. Um, well, the biggest thing is you have very little say, uh, in what you get to work with. You, you're pretty much given, uh, a festival design to work with and you can either augment that on your own, uh, as long as you can get it on and off the stage in the usually very short time allotted for set changes, uh, and so that's, you, and, that's,
0: and that's a case where like they have like four hands that and if those four guys can do it in time that yeah
2: and if it. you if you have enough touring crew with you to handle the rig, if you have uh personnel to to handle like usually the most you're going to get is a small floor package you're not going to be flying trusses, you're not going to be reconfiguring a rig uh ninety nine times out of a hundred, even if you 're the headlining act uh, simply because of the nature of how festivals go, they got to get the bands on, they got to get them off. Uh, so they can move on to the next the next set okay uh so you you have to find a way to make it work with whatever you have that given day uh it may be completely different configuration than you're used to different numbers of fixtures different types of fixtures uh so uh you try and design for uh for those contingencies if you know you're going in into them but oftentimes you don't sometimes you start a tour with a design, and they add dates on another leg later that have uh, festival scenarios in them. So you have to have to be flexible and, and do it on the fly.
1: So what sort of programming time do you get for something like that?
2: Uh, it usually depends on when you arrive. Uh, on the rare occasion, you'll get an evening beforehand, uh, especially a larger festival if you're headlining. Uh, but 99 times out of 100, you're walking in the morning of... Get a patch sheet, change your fixture types, and repatch. Maybe you get a chance to check a few pallets and probably 10 minutes of focus time during a set change, and then you're off and running. That's it. Uh, at the same time, you've got to prep your follow spots. So you're uh, yakking on the comm as you're trying to get your focus done, and it's usually a pretty intense. Uh, set change most of the time.
1: And so for Alice change is that just you? Do you have a programmer and you? Is just no, you? Uh,
2: for Allison Chains, it's just me. I do all the programming as well. Um, a lot of times it involves video too. So uh, add that to the, uh, the list of things you have to do in that short period of time as well. You have to test the video surfaces and make sure everything plugged in right and switched over properly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's usually pretty hectic, hectic, Short set change, and then once you're off and running, you just—if something doesn't work—you go with it, figure so, out a way to, to to live without it, and and keep moving.
0: So not only are you providing your own lighting uh, control, you're providing your own uh, video playback.
2: Yeah, if we have uh, if we're using video elements, we're usually supplying our own servers. Uh, in a festival situation, you don't have time to reprogram to a different media platform or uh, rewrite media cues. You either plug in your servers that are already pre-programmed and ready to go, or you don't use them. Okay, in that scenario,
0: do you normally program your own shows as an LD? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, I almost always program my own stuff. So,
0: so those are the those are the challenges you have for a one-off festival-style thing. Now, how now, how about uh, a concert tour?
2: Uh, well, inevitably, you know, it's the same challenges that that any project has. It. At the end of the day, it comes down to space and money. <laughs> how much room can you uh, uh, eke out of the trucks? Uh, how many, is it one truck that you have to, to stuff gear into? Is it half a truck's worth of uh, space you have to stuff gear into? And how much uh, m- money do you have to spend on the gear you want as opposed to the gear you can work with? That's uh, always a very delicate balance to find.
0: Okay. Um, what can what can you do as a lighting designer to help make sure that a show can move and move efficiently?
2: Uh, just be aware of what it takes to to set it up. Yeah, you, you can't just uh, you know. It's nice to create a pretty picture on paper and create a nice rendering and you know, schmooze the management types into uh, believing your your vision for the the show. But then you also have to be able to to realize that every day. So. Uh, thinking about how things are put together, uh, both on a structural rigging, uh, scale, as well as on, a uh, electromechanical scale. You know, how is it going to be cabled? How long is it going to take to, to run those cables? And also you have to keep troubleshooting in mind if something goes wrong, uh, how easy is it to get to different pieces of the rig? Cause inevitably things break on the road, you bounce and stuff in and out of cases on and off trucks all day long, um something's going to fail at some point. Uh, it's not a question of if, it's when, and how fast can you react to it.
0: Okay, and uh, does that also extend to fixture selection, trying to select fixtures that you know have uh, are better at being bounced around?
2: Absolutely, yeah. There are certain fixtures that uh, I've had better experiences with and other fixtures I've had lesser experiences with, and I try to, to steer away from those that I know aren't going to hold up to that type of abuse.
0: Uh, have you had a case where someone wanted something very specific and that thing happened to be a very not roadworthy uh, device or system
2: uh, yeah I've had that happen a couple of times where uh, sometimes I'm only designing one element of the show uh, and there's another production designer or another lighting designer involved and I may be just programming and perhaps just designing media and video but the the lighting design and production design is happening by somebody else uh, and there have been times where I'll voice my concerns at the beginning, and then after that, you just bite your tongue and uh, you move forward and hope it doesn't fail. But then, when it does fail, you know it's—I hate to say I told you so—but mm-hmm. now we're having problems with this. And what do we what do we do to fix it?
0: Well, right. You know, you talked about you know the renderings, and uh, how do you communicate with artists about their expectations and their needs? you know generally they didn't go to film school or go to uh, theater school so they don't have the the vocabulary a theater or film designer is going to have
2: sure uh, and it it varies greatly depending on the the artist what type of uh visual language are they used to uh usually you try and get some eek some ideas out of them first otherwise you're just taking total shots in the dark but if you can find uh at least a general direction that they want to go in um you know do you want something uh, dreamy and ethereal, uh, do you want something darker, moodier, do you want something more psychedelic, uh, do you want something that looks very industrial, uh, crusty looking, do you want it clean and polished, even those general type of, uh, of visual directions to get you going from an artist can, can give you enough to, to, to work something out uh, for them.
0: Okay. So, you know, let's say, what were the, what were the guys from Alice and Janes talking about, and how did that uh, manifest in the final design? Um,
2: they like it darker, they like it moodier, uh, and they also like uh, stuff more psychedelic. Uh, you can think of, uh, if you listen to a lot of the riffs that they've, they've written over the years, it's, it's almost nauseating. So, they intentionally write music to make people feel uncomfortable, and almost sick or physically ill, so you try and uh, mirror some of that with the imagery we use in the media, the the colors and patterns and movements of the light, uh, and how they uh, how they work with the music as well to to try and achieve that effect.
1: Do you do any sort of a previs process, or is it pretty much plot to reality?
2: Uh, usually, I do some previs. Um, I happen to to own my own media servers as well as consoles so i can usually uh set up uh, in advance at least some some baseline things to work from visualizers are great for a lot of things but they're only so good uh so it I, I do do some previs as long as there's uh budget resources for that i don't necessarily do it for free unless it's to make my own life easier right uh in the case of Alice, we did we did quite a bit of previs and then uh, had a fair amount of production rehearsals as well for the various legs of the tour. We had a couple different designs uh, over the course of the the last eighteen months. So uh, every time it was a new prep period and a new programming period, and uh, to to realize the design and be able to to move it because once you're out there, you can make small changes and tweaks as you go, but any any broad changes really require time time to to realize. So once once you're out there, you're you're just doing it the same way every day if you can. Okay. Um
0: what can you walk us through a show day on tour?
2: Sure. Uh depending on the extent of the tour, you get off the tour bus, you walk into the venue, you uh talk to your rigger and start getting your rigging points aligned and make any adjustments uh that might need to be made to make to make the rig easier, or you just have to deal with the reality of the building. So once rigging is done, then you start tipping the trucks, gear starts rolling in, uh, things start going up in the air. You usually hope to have everything at least hung and ready for testing by lunchtime. You take your lunch break, you come back, check everything out, do a focus, maybe you do a sound check. Uh, By then you're dealing with uh, any advance issues you have for... Future shows in the afternoon, typically. Uh, Any programming adjustments that need to happen, happen then. And then you go have dinner, you do the show, you load it all out, uh, take a shower, crawl back on the bus, and sleep for four or five hours as you drive to the next venue. And then you do it all again the next day.
0: Uh, So uh, can I ask you about concert lighting in general for a minute?
2: Sure. Um,
0: A lot of times you'll see a lighting system for a concert and... Maybe there's 100 moving lights, maybe there's 120 moving lights, and the vast majority of them are not pointing at the stage or at the band. Uh, they're pointing at the air or the audience. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Well, you, especially in a large venue like an arena um, or a stadium, you have so much more space that you can uh, project into and and sculpt and carve out that why wouldn't you take the opportunity to... To enhance the visual experience, um, you know, it's something you always have to do with an eye towards: does it fit the 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 music? Does it fit the artist? Does it fit the piece? Uh, you, if you know, you can you can do anything gratuitously, but uh, or overuse it, or use it in the wrong place. But when it's done right, it's really very effective because you can you can make use of that that space.
0: Well, I mean, you know, I'll say a fly away or a fly through the audience is way more effective if you don't already have lights in the audience's eyes.
2: Typically, yeah. I'll I'll agree with that. Uh, Another issue a lot of people are coming up against is when you don't have a unified design between video and lighting systems. You have the video people doing their thing and lighting people doing their own thing. A lot of times you've got these massive LED surfaces all over the stage that are emitting light and that essentially acts as the light for the artist other than perhaps a key light or a, a follow spot. So you don't need to light the artist. They can be seen just fine with the, the massive video wall. So you find, you take the opportunity to uh, go into spaces that uh, you, can, you can utilize, but they can't.
0: You know, as you mentioned video, it's so a concert, a concert with IMAG, a concert with a live audience being shot for TV, a concert being shot exclusively for broadcast. What's the
2: difference? The different difference is uh, who are you concerned with primarily. If it's uh, if it's just a, a live concert, then you don't care about necessarily things like uh, color temperature or uh, keeping looks uh, balanced for a camera for for a certain aperture settings. So you're not blowing out lenses and things. When it's just done for your eye, then then you light it for your eye. Uh, when you start adding IMAG in, then you have to take that a little bit more into consideration. And then when you're shooting it for, uh, specifically publication later or broadcast later, then that has to become the, the, the priority. Um, so if I'll take i I'll use an example from Alice and Chains. We do a lot of saturated colors in our follow spots. Typically we're going into a broadcast situation where we know it's something that's going to be, uh, widely seen or put in the can for publication to DVD or Blu-ray or or streaming media, then we just go to color-balanced white spots for the whole show uh, just to keep enough light on the guys so the they look good on camera. That has to be the concern. And the live audience becomes, unfortunately, secondary concern. Uh, you don't want to completely screw up the, the visual character of your show but you do have to to make those adjustments and accommodations Uh, depending upon you you just have to decide who's who's your primary audience who do you care most about Do you care most about the people who paid the money to come in uh, paid for a ticket or are you caring more about the the broadcast audience later
0: okay now how about in situations where there's imag and you know you have this you know you mentioned using saturated color in your follow spots but I'm sure the video guys want to have the same color on the, on, you know, as the key light for the entire show. But if you do that, then every song looks the same.
2: Right. Well, that, that's where you work more uh, to balance the cues and try and perhaps balance the level of the follow spots, um, whether it be through stopping down the, the, the dimmer or uh, neutral density or whatever it takes to, to get a, a closer, more unified level across all your looks, then you can, uh, have the guys who are running the cameras. Okay. You stay at this aperture setting and you should be good for the whole show. The colors are going to shift and the shader is going to be doing a lot of work, but, uh, at least you're not worried about having things too blown out or too dark or large shifts between. And it's, you know, if it's just for iMag, it is less critical. Uh, I tend to shy away from iMag as much as possible. I don't want people watching TV up in the air, craning their heads back when the the band is right in front of them. Uh, oh, for uh, but, for sure. But certain venues, it it is absolutely appropriate and necessary to to make sure that everybody has uh, a good experience and can see see the guys that they came to come see. Um, definitely. You have any thoughts?
1: Uh, I think I think I'm interested to talk about how concert lighting has changed since you started. Um, how long have you been doing it?
2: Uh, fifteen years or so. Yeah, about that and, since about '98.
1: And what are big changes you've seen since you've started?
2: Mostly in the, just the technology. I mean, we've gone from 575 watt fixtures being the primary fixtures and just finding a way to to make those work to you know 1500 watt, 1700 watt fixtures, uh, beam fixtures like the Sharpie and things where you can now work in broad daylight, uh, whereas trying to focus a 575 rig in daylight get it i don't care who makes it it's just not not an option without standing there and staring down down the barrel and twisting knobs to to make your focus happen so th- and uh, the introduction of leds uh when i started there was really led was you know something that you had on your console <laughs> it was <laughs> an, an indicator and it was either uh red or green or amber and blue was a new thing um they hadn't even ha- they didn't have the white diodes yet uh when I started doing this stuff, so to see that whole shift now, where it's now a standard and the normal uh, has been been quite a change, and in the video delivery systems as well, we've gone from projection based uh, things, or maybe a few uh, uh, CRTs, is really when we started, and now they've gone to flat screens and plasmas that, that could make walls into these massive high resolution LED uh, video delivery systems. So the, the technology has certainly shifted and you have to keep up with it. It's, there's a new product coming out every minute. So if you don't stay on top of it, you know, you're going to be left behind. Even if it's not something you're going to use, you have to be aware of it. You might run into it, uh, in a festival situation and have to know what the strengths and weaknesses of the product are, uh, when you step into that. Otherwise, you know, it, it could turn around and bite you.
0: So you know personally I find that video can be both liberating and limiting. And liberating because of the tremendous amount of options there are, but limiting because there are still people that think of video as something that is projected onto a screen. As a video designer, how do you help clients get past the prison of the four-three rectangle?
2: Um, I try to do as much as possible less standard surfaces, uh change the shape of it or break it up and try and express that to the client as we're using video as a lighting element. It's not video for the sake of video. We're not doing pie charts here. We're not doing the 100 foot tall Wizard of Oz head as iMag behind you. Uh, This is uh, another visual element that is predominantly a lighting element. Yes, we're using video and we're using video files, uh, to create this, and we're using video delivery systems to create these these looks. But uh, predominantly, it's lighting. It's a lighting element.
0: Okay, I know you mentioned not loving using iMag uh, as part of your designs. Uh, how do you structure your video designs?
2: I try and keep the video surfaces in line with uh, the audience's viewpoint of the band. So they're not having to turn their head in another direction to, to see what's going on. So I try and place them uh, quite often low and behind the band uh, or just above their heads. Uh, for the, the Black Diamond Sky Tour we did with Alice in Chains in 2010, we had a huge array of, of video elements. We had projection screens in trusses that moved above the band. We had a gray Marley floor that was projected on uh, so that the people in the nosebleed section in the arenas could see something on the floor when they couldn't see the stuff that was up in the air, and then we had screens, LED delivery screens uh, directly behind the band and just above their heads, but not so far that they went up and past the other lighting elements and other uh, video elements up above.
0: Okay.
2: So it it it's more about putting them in a place uh, that isn't going to detract from from The experience of watching the band perform because if you do that then inevitably people drift and they start watching tv and they're not watching the band anymore
0: and uh and that's not good for anybody
2: no that's not the experience you want people to have or typically you know maybe it is maybe you need to distract from from something going (laughs) on stage so you want to watch this hand while this hand does something else but uh but that has to be an intentional choice
0: So you mentioned that project. Uh, Are there any other really notable ones you'd you'd want to talk about on the the video side of that?
2: Well, the other one, we did the the Uproar Festival Tour with Alice in uh, 2013. We just finished that uh, around this time last year. Uh, It was end of August, beginning of September. Uh, And for that one, because we were in a festival scenario, uh, we had several screens directly behind the band and they had some... uh, some higher platforms to walk on uh, as scenic elements. And so they floated just above that, and then we put more up above, uh, way up in the air, but then curved them so that it was almost like a a forced perspective design so that the, the screens behind were angled at, say, 45 to 30 degrees, and then the screens in the air were angled again at 35, 40 degrees, both horizontally and vertically so that the whole thing kind of wrapped and enclosed the band. And so if you were uh, in the uh, the sheds, a lot of times there's people way off on the sides of the lawn. And if you put everything in a flat line, those people have a bad viewing angle. So the people could who were far, far house right could see this upstage left screens dead on and vice versa. And then we added some uh, some banner screens above that uh on the front truss out in the house, again, for the people up in the lawn seats who are at a higher elevation that keeps visually in the line of uh, of the band for them. But they were high enough so that the people on the floor really would have to tilt their head way, way back to, to even see those. Uh, so those those were more for the people who were up at a, at a higher elevation and had a different, different sight line.
0: And so you're keeping video in everyone's view and they can still visualize the band at the same time
2: yeah and you're you're creating because a lot of those stages are very shallow in the sheds uh you're creating but th- with this forced perspective um a sense of depth that isn't there uh, you're creating the illusion of depth by by forcing people's perspective to to think that it's deeper than it actually is
0: uh, so uh for all this content what do you use for creation what do you use for editing what do you use for playback
2: um, when i'm doing my own creation uh, i stick with the the adobe tools uh, after effects um, and premiere
0: do you shoot your own stuff
2: uh typically no there's a if if it gets that involved if it's something very simple sure i'll i'll go out and shoot it but uh a lot of times there's a a, a few different content providers guys that are are way better at this than i am uh, who I'll hire on uh t- to the project uh there's also been some that have come in Directly from the band uh, in the case of Alice uh, there have been been video directors they've worked with on music videos that they wanted to create content specifically uh, and usually I'll just get involved in terms of theme and uh, an overall vision for any specific song that they're they're getting involved in and sometimes there's already a, a clear path uh, but for a lot of the content provision uh, it's done by by people I bring in
0: and so you added Adobe.
2: Yeah, edit in Adobe. Uh both like I said, both premiere and, and after effects.
0: And then you play back via media server pretty much as a role.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it definitely wants to be something uh DMX controllable. You don't want to have a, a lighting desk and a video deck out there that you have to run at the same time. It can be done, but uh that's that's far from the ideal.
0: Now uh, what do you use for synchronization?
2: Uh in terms of uh which which products am I using? Well no no I, I mean
0: like in, in terms of in what are you using what are you using for synchronizing what's happening on stage with what's let's say is there a backing are they playing to a backing track?
2: No there's no click there's oh, okay. no well, that... there's no SMPTE. In, in the case of Alice it's all manual. There there's been other larger uh, there was a large pop tour I did 3 years ago that was all smty and just a few manual cues. Uh, but there were 10 follow spots to call in that show so uh, there was plenty to do. Uh but in the case of the Alice guys, it's all it's all manual. I have pre-built looks for each part of the song, and then I have manual bumps and overrides and things to to enhance as we go.
0: Actually, that was a question of mine uh, that I had: what, uh, how much of your work as a concert adult D is live, and how much of it is uh, just um, hit and go on the cue list?
2: Again, it depends on the show. Uh, for Alice in Chains, it's it's all. Um, pre-programmed cues for for different parts of the song as a bass look um i have another set of looks that are just for the video um and then i have uh all kinds of bumps flashes additional effects faded effects uh timed effects that are that are hit manually um and then in in the case of other artists that have uh neil young when i was a lighting director on that um Everything was manual. There were no pre-programmed cues. Everything was on a handle, and because the guy had you know 300 songs and he could play anyone he wanted at any time and didn't go off a set list, so uh, you kind of have to tailor it toward, towards the show.
0: This leads nicely into talking about programming. Um, you've programmed and run shows for a whole host of designers uh, at this point. What, what are some of those projects you've done? You know, I saw that you did uh, ice shows on cruise ships. You did Sex and
2: City 2. You You've done award shows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the list goes farther back than I probably care to remember. But, yeah, I've done uh, with uh, Marsha Madeira on the Royal Caribbean cruise ships. We've done uh, a bunch of the ice skating shows uh, on the new builds. It's been a few years since they've had a, a new ship come out with an ice rink. So uh, it's been a while since I've worked with her. Um but that has been uh, typically video as well as as lighting for those shows. Uh, just programming uh, and, and
0: ultimately playback on those things is completely canned, right?
2: Yeah, at, on the cruise ships, it's all simty so it's all time coded. Uh, once you uh, enable the the console to to listen to the the clock stream, then it, it runs itself. It's like a
0: run show button, and then
2: yep. Well, you know, you have to consider that the you know the guys who are going to be there the first time around are probably going to be uh, quite good because they're there for the install, and then the next set of guys who come in might not be quite as good, and then the next set of guys who come in might not be quite as good. They might be great, but they might not. So you have to idiot-proof it as much as possible so that it runs the same way every night. It's like a theme park attraction with live people. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that has some, some challenges to it as well.
0: And also so, what are the challenges in you know, say programming uh, on a cruise ship
2: uh, well, the environment is the is the biggest one. You're on a a large ship in the middle of the water and everything's moving around and your power's coming from wherever it can come from and uh, all kinds of things can can go wrong that might not normally go wrong in a, in a production environment you could have, uh, especially with an ice skating show, you can have very rough seas. And when the skater jumps, the floor moves underneath them before they land again. So uh, that can that can be uh, dangerous for the, for the performers mostly. Uh, so sometimes certain tricks have to be pulled out of a show uh, if there's really rough seas. And so you have to have the ability for the operator to jump past certain places in, in the show or just skip ahead uh, if things need to be edited out.
0: How about, uh, on, let's say, uh, on a feature or on award shows, I know, I know these are very, very different things. And so how are the, um, how are the expectations on you different? Uh,
2: again, it's going to be different in, in every situation. You kind of just have to feel it out as, as you go along. Uh, in the case of the Sex and City shoot, which was, uh, Mike Baldessari's design and I was programming, you know, we had a week, week and a half to, to build the rig and test everything out, um. So things were, were pretty well pre-planned. So mostly for me, it was just get right into building looks uh, right away after after we have the technology sorted out and, and troubleshot, which took a, a day or two. Uh, it was a fairly large rig on that, on that show. So uh, once that was all ready to go, it's, it's dive right in. Other shows, you have to spend more time with the technicians uh, figuring out what lights need to go in what universes? What they need to be addressed to? What the best way to structure the the data architecture might be? Uh, you know, what the best way to st- structure the power architecture might be? A lot of those those film sets are huge, so you have to consider voltage drop when you start running running from certain places. Uh, there are a lot of moving lights out there that just don't like don't like to work uh, below a certain uh, operating voltage. So if you are not factoring that in when you're putting the whole thing together that can cause problems later it's not something that might manifest itself immediately Um, you could do something that might cause a a draw that then all of a sudden causes a voltage drop and you can't figure out why you've lost 40 lights over here in this corner and if it happens while they're shooting that's that's not a good place to be so you want to try to avoid those those situations obviously as much as possible Um, do you have any other favorite
0: projects as it just as a programmer
2: favorite projects uh the ice skating shows are are a lot of fun i've I've had a great time doing those uh the concert touring is great uh i'm at a point in my life with with family and things where the long haul tours are are kind of on uh on hold for the moment uh, I'm good going out for a month at a time and coming home for a while but the days of being gone for seven or eight months at a at a clip are just they're they're out out for me at the moment.
0: Uh, you know, it's, uh, I wanted to ask you about that, too. You know, you're a family man in addition to everything else you do. Uh, how have you managed to be present in your son's life while doing what you do?
2: Um, the biggest thing dealing with him, he's just turned five just this, this past week, and is uh, some really good advice I got from one of my aunts, whose my uncle was, uh, when he was working, was the first mate on an uh, oil tanker for Shell. So he would be gone for three or four months at a time. Uh, he had two young daughters. She said, just don't make a big deal out of it. You're going to work and you'll be back when you're back and uh, you stay in touch as much as possible. And, you know, things nowadays we have technology to help us out like Skype and other video conferencing tools, uh, video chat tools, which are great. That's still no, no replacement for being there, but it's still better than just a voice down the line. Um so yeah, it's 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 hard to find a balance, but the the flip side of that is he gets to travel a lot. So uh, we'll finish a tour and in, in or near a good vacation spot, and family will come out and we'll spend a couple weeks. Uh, last November we spent two weeks in Spain after we finished a tour in the UK. So uh
0: well, that's a great way to turn it, to almost turn it around.
2: Yeah. So it, it the the key is uh, which has worked really well is. I've got to go to work and uh, I'll be back when I'm back but you can call me whenever you want just uh, go get mom and and get the phone
0: Uh, if we can just go back to programming for just a second sure Um, I know there's a lot more people calling themselves programmers today than ever before and yet it can be still be really hard to find a good programmer for a given show what makes someone a good programmer
2: Uh, well in my opinion for a, a good programmer somebody who has a good eye for for the show to begin with. It's not just somebody who knows how to operate the desk, who knows, who knows how to do data entry on a console. Uh, that would be a literal definition of a, a, a lighting programmer. I think a good lighting programmer goes beyond that and understands uh, the visual language uh, that's going to be used for the show. So Hopefully they have a good uh, rapport already with with the designer be it the lighting designer or productions designer or whoever or event designer whoever they're dealing with uh, and are able to do a lot of work on their own and present options uh, as opposed to just tell me what you want to see here it is tell me what you want to see here it is that that to me doesn't make a good good programmer a good programmer is able to work on their own uh, and and take the reins and run with it, and let the designer deal with other things, and then come back and make adjustments. And it may be the type of adjustment that's crap, I hate that look, we're going to rebuild it. But that's fine, at least you had something in there uh, to work from. And
0: what should people who are looking to transition into programming know? What should they be prepared for, and what can they do?
2: Uh, Know your control surface. Practice, practice, practice. The faster you can... Uh, perform an operation, the less time is spent waiting around. Uh, Like I said, you don't want to keep people waiting around for essentially what amounts to data entry. Uh, And if you don't know how to do something or you're not quite sure, just be honest about it. Say, I'm not quite sure how to do this. Do you want to come back to it? Do you want to spend more time on it? Do you want me to to work on this and you go away? But just be be clear with people about what, and be clear with yourself about what your capabilities are. because especially in a, a fast-paced programming scenario, it's, those weaknesses will be revealed very quickly. Uh, and usually 99 times out of 100, when you're up front with people about uh, what your capabilities are and what it's going to take to create a certain look, people are fine with it. They either say, okay, great, let's, uh, let's spend an additional 5, 10 minutes now and work on it. Or you know what? Maybe that's something to do when everybody else goes to lunch or maybe tomorrow morning or later if we get to it, uh, if we have time, but we're going to press on. But if, if you're just sitting there, you know, clacking away on the keys and not giving any, any feedback to the designer, that's when, when things can get dicey because they have no idea what's going on. So you need to be, you need to be able to communicate clearly what it's going to take to achieve any, any given look.
0: And that sounds like it's uh, applicable no matter what discipline you're, you're working in.
2: Yeah, I would say so. Uh, certainly as a designer, you need to be clear with the client uh, about what it's going to take to achieve a certain design. Um, how much labor, uh, what it's going to cost for gear rental, uh, how much time it's going to take to program, uh, how, if, if it's going to be a touring production, You know, how much build time are you going to need, how much local labor are you going to require, uh, you know, how much space is this stuff going to take up. Where is it coming from? Where it's where is it going to when it's done? Uh, those are, yeah, being able to to communicate those things clearly uh, and just be honest about them.
0: And and much like what you said about you know when when you realize you've sort of hit a wall and I don't quite know how to do this. Do you want to take care of this now? Or do you want to come back to it? Uh, don't wait to tell someone. I think we're gonna run over on a, on, a, on on truck size. I think we're gonna run over on weight. Um, as soon as you know, let them know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm looking at this issue now, and uh, I'll let you know what the solution is. But at least they know. Then it doesn't come as a surprise later. Uh, the sooner you can can get on top of things, the better. If you let things wait for too long, then then that can turn it into a, an ugly situation pretty quickly. Because uh, everybody's dealing with with their own set of issues, and when your issues become their issues, that's when when problems can arise.
0: So uh, can you talk a little bit about just working internationally You know, between the tours and the cruise ships and all of that? You've worked in a lot of different countries or worked all over the place. What are some things that we should know about working internationally and in other countries? I mean, you were born in another country, right?
2: Yeah, I was born in the Netherlands. I was born in the city of Utrecht. So I'm Dutch by birth. Uh, my father's Dutch and my mother's American, although I've lived most of my life in the U.S. the The biggest thing is be cool. Don't don't uh, start screaming and yelling, don't start uh, causing a scene unnecessarily. just be as tactful and diplomatic as you can to, to dealing with problems as you can because there will be a lot, especially in third world countries. They I'll don't like, have example, the uh, uh, well they don't have the electrical infrastructure that we have they don't have the safety standards that we have. Um, they might be doing something that they consider uh, a standard and to be completely safe uh and you may look at it and go that no there's no way that we can possibly do this. Uh, this is this is a dangerous situation and we have to we have to find another solution. But to lose your cool about it is not going to do anyone any favors. You're going to you're going to make the situation worse. And you know, I've seen some some pretty wacky electrical systems. I've seen some pretty wacky uh rigging systems uh in use. Uh, some of them safe, some of them not so much safe. But uh, occasionally, you just that's that's what you have to deal with, and you find find the best way to make it work and and move forward. Can you
0: take a particular
2: situation? Tell us how you made that work. Uh, well,
0: uh, without necessarily letting us know where.
2: Yeah, there was there was a, a a tour I was on that was in a a strange location, and we were seeing all kinds of weird things going on with our our power lines. Uh, we're getting voltage fluctuations and you know things just weren't working right you could see it on 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 our meters that things were 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 awry and fortunately we had a guy on that tour it was large enough that we had a a guy who just dealt with power and he decided he was going to go take a closer look at the the generators and the source and see if maybe something was was amiss there he goes off and takes a walk and he comes back about five or ten minutes later and he's cursing and yelling and throwing things around his workbox, and he comes out with a claw hammer and he's wrapping it in electrical tape and a couple of us look at each other go the power guy has a claw hammer and he's wrapping it in electrical tape this can't be any kind of good he goes all right everybody power everything off disconnect all your feeder cable i'll be back in 10 minutes okay power everything off
0: not something you really want to argue with no
2: okay nope no worries (laughs) we do it he goes off comes back about 15 minutes later Hooks up uh, all the main main lines again. He tests it and goes, okay, we should be good. Let's go. So we finished our load and finished teching everything out. I didn't ask him right then and there. Uh, it was later at a meal break. I said, so I have to ask, what in the world did you need the claw hammer for? And he goes, you won't believe what these idiots were doing. They Anytime they needed power for a dressing room tent or an office or a kitchen space, they would take a piece of lamp cord zip wire, wrap it around a nail and hammer it through the live four odd feeder cable, grounding itself into the ground as it went through. So I had to go through and pull all the nails out of the feeder cable and wrap all the holes in the, in the cables to make the power stable again. (laughs) And that's just not something you can possibly plan for. You just have to have to deal with it. And he said, I'm, kind of shocked that there wasn't a dead body laying next to, to one of these lines because there's, there's a lot of high amperage going through these things.
0: One wonders where they got the idea in the first place. Yeah,
2: it's, you know There's a lot of places in the world you'll go to that you'll look up above a public street and wonder, how in the world does this work? Uh, the fact of the matter is it, it, it doesn't a lot of the time and that's why people just go in and splice wherever they can find a live line and, and run a new cable. And when that doesn't work, they come in and splice a new one in, and don't even bother taking the old one out. So, and, and that's just the the way things are done.
0: Well, that's true. You know, we we're saying that from a position of having grown up among electrical infrastructure that generally always works and generally always provides 120 volt uh, yeah. power whenever we turn the switch on.
2: Yeah, And it's generally pretty clean and pretty safe. But there's a lot of places in the world where that's that's just not the case. Um, they do things. A different way and you have to be able to work in that environment because you're not going to change it. You're not going to change a, a city's electrical architecture for your show. Uh, you're not going to change the way the local electricians think about uh, running power and dealing with power.
0: Because all their experiences are built on having to deal with this sort of lack of structure over the past however many decades. Yep, they,
2: you know, they're used to just rigging it up any way it works and, and, and moving on
0: is there anything that you've learned while traveling that you've been able to take with you and use elsewhere?
2: Well, yeah, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of things. Um, you know, you, you learn new things on, on every show you do, you learn new ways of approaching problems that maybe you, you didn't think of before, uh, both from, uh, a, a technical level and also a design level. Um, that's a really interesting way to, to use those or how to set those up. I never would have thought of that. Um, uh, which is one of the nice things about doing a lot of festivals uh, and a lot of out-of-the-way places is you get exposed to how other people think about things that you might not ever have come up with on your own. I'll try to think of a, a few good specific examples of that. Um, well,
0: We can come back around to yeah. that. Um, how have you seen the business change since you started working professionally? We can even break that into pieces. You know, The, the design side, the rental side, the actual business of the business side
2: yeah beyond just the the, the technical changes um, things are becoming more and more budget driven uh, where that didn't used to be one of the first questions I asked now it's one of the first questions I asked, one approach with a new project is how much do you want to spend on this? you know I can create the the wildest, craziest, coolest design you've ever seen in your life, but if it costs three million dollars and you only want to spend three thousand. It's a moot exercise, so let's not waste everybody's time. Just tell me, even if it's just a, a range of of uh, of budget figures, what do we have for fabrication of custom pieces, if there is any need for that? Uh, what do we have for gear rental? What do we have for labor? Those, those are now the initial questions I ask, as opposed to what do you want the show to look like? It used to be what do you want the show to look like, and we'll figure out the budget stuff later. Uh, now it's become far more budget driven. Yeah, that does seem like a pretty big change, uh, especially over the last five to ten years. Uh, it, more and more so.
1: Do you have any thoughts on why that is?
2: I think uh, you know economics being what they are uh, in this country, certainly we've had a, a, a rough decade. so things are, are are starting to climb out of that, but people are used to operating another way. So now that they know, uh, or have become used to the idea that we can do everything cheaper, uh, or that you can strong-arm people into uh, charging less for things, then that has become the new normal. It's no longer uh, a tactic that's used to to deal with a specific situation. That's now become the standard way of operating.
0: It, it's become the tactic of them dealing with the fact they need to make a boat payment.
2: Yep. Uh, and then there's also the uh, I want everything, I want it now. Uh, there's no there's not a lot of time left for thought and consideration you know people want an answer immediately they send you an email they want a response within 30 seconds or they feel like they're they're not being uh, given enough attention or proper attention and a lot of that has to do with the uh, the social media and the electronic media that we're communicating with now people people are they want that instant response they want to, to know what's happening what's going on well you know give me a day to 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 think about it and Get my head wrapped around it and come up with a, a, a visual uh, image for you to you know, let's get a rendering done. That doesn't just happen in five minutes. Give me a day or two. If you want a lot of renderings, give me a week or two. Uh, but the, you know the, the demand for that uh, instant gratification and instant response is something I've seen more and more over just the last few years, especially.
0: And uh, what about the, the, the sort of the, corp, the, the corporate side of the business?
2: Uh, in terms of corporate clients or in terms of uh, corporations that we deal with it's in terms of vendors and management companies, uh,
0: I would say both actually, but um, I'd say more I was asking more specifically about the the vendors and the, the you know and, and the, the folks that we deal with that way.
2: You know more and more people are are taking a more professional approach to to operating as a a, a business as a vendors, which is good that that that's good for everybody you don't have these guys who just got into it because it was cool and i you know started out with 10 lights in my garage and then all of a sudden exploded into this this company there still is is an element of that but because you have people who are doing it as a serious business venture now you have uh greater support you have uh, better response to to issues you face, uh, especially when you're out on the road. That's one of the key things I look for in a vendor: is what kind of support can you offer us in the areas we're going to? It, you know, it's all well and good to get your lights from from X vendor at half the price, but if they can't get you replacement parts, if they can't get you uh, new personnel, if if somebody gets ill or injured, uh,
0: if your ballasts start exploding, if
2: your ballasts, you know, yeah you you somebody crossed a, a live and a neutral on the generator and fried you know an entire truss when you powered it on uh, that, fortunately that's never happened to me but I've seen it happen uh on other productions you know what kind how how fast can you fix the problem when there is a problem uh so that that's a key thing to for me to look for in in dealing with a vendor is what what kind of uh, professional attitude do do they take and and are they uh, on my team? Are they going to be ready to jump if if we have a problem?
0: Uh, do you think the business as a whole is becoming professionalized or is becoming professionalized or has think,
2: become professionalized? Yeah, I think it has to, to a large extent. Um, and I think that's, as I said, I think that's a good thing for, for most people.
0: Um, people are going and getting degrees. They're getting um, training. They're getting professional certifications in the business. Uh, and in fact, you, you yourself went and got yourself a theater degree.
2: Yeah, started at SUNY Purchase way back when. Went for the, the BFA in, in theater design, so which was a great place to to start.
0: And what so what were those first couple of years? Well, I know you were already working professionally before you even left college. Now you're working at the tunnel, right?
2: Yeah, I was doing a lot of nightclubs and a lot of raves, which was not only a good way to make some money, but it was a good way for me to to play around with. New technologies, the, the emerging moving light technologies uh, and control technologies, uh, in a completely experimental environment. You know, it didn't really matter too much what you did, as long as it "quote unquote" looked cool. Uh, you, could, you pretty much had free reign to do whatever you wanted, so you could really push things and, and find out what they did and what they didn't do, and uh, do things almost for your own edification, as long as you you met a certain minimum standard for the for the crowd.
0: At, at the time, it has to have been a little bit strange to be. See, seeing this equipment, like as you said, was emergent and going, this stuff is going to become the standard.
2: Yeah. And I, I don't think that was, uh, necessarily ignored. It was, you know, these are, these are tools, uh, just make sure it's the right tool to get the job done. Um, when you're lighting a, 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 uh, a straight theater play, you know, at the time in the, the early nineties, yeah, using a bunch of moving lights probably wouldn't be the best choice. Uh, not only uh for for aesthetic reasons but for uh for practical and and budgetary and technical reasons you know they they were pretty flaky early on they'd fail a lot they made a lot of noise Uh, color temperature and and color uh rendering index of, of the lamps wasn't particularly good early on especially so uh like anything else it's make sure it's it's the right tool for the job. what are you trying to achieve and is this is this the proper piece of gear to do it with and as long as you keep that in mind, then it doesn't matter what the technology is or where it is
0: all right so you know so what were those first couple of years after uh, after completing your degree like
2: um well i didn't do anything for about the first six or seven months. Uh, I had another job uh, I was working at a horse racing harness racing track as the uh headline technician so i was in charge of uh, maintaining all the machines that all the the money went through all the betting machines so it was a pretty intense uh job but it paid decently well at the time uh but what that allowed me to do was save up enough money to to leave that job and pursue full-time uh designing and uh programming as well the thing I found early on, uh, the the way I kind of fell into programming was there just weren't a lot of people out there who knew how to use these systems, who knew how to program moving lights, who knew how to use the the various control systems. So, all right, nobody else knows how to do it. I'll figure it out. Uh, I'll rent one for a weekend and I'll sit in my living room with a couple of lights. And uh, I think the first real console I did that with was uh, a Hog 2 uh, in the mid-90s. It you know, started with some of the the high-end rack-mount controllers and the Compulite Animator desk, um, some of the early Evo, uh desks as well.
0: It's been long enough that I almost remember the rack-mounted LightWave controllers fondly at this point. Yeah. Although, I bet if I had to use one now.
2: <laughs> you probably wouldn't think of it so fondly if you had to try and program a show mm-hmm. on it now. But at the time, that's all there was, so you didn't know any different. Uh, that's just the way it was done. So, uh,
1: so how did you transition from that into uh, concert touring?
2: Uh, I got a gig at a at a venue uh, in the East Village called uh, Joe's Pub, which was brand new at the time. It was kind of a cabaret hybrid cabaret nightclub, experimental theater place, uh, that was mostly a restaurant and bar. And it just had this kind of small postage stamp of a stage in one corner that they did all these these kind of cool crazy shows in, um, and I got that almost right away after I quit that, that that racetrack job within within two months of applying myself full-time to start looking at uh, getting into the production world again. So that, that was a, a fortuitous situation for me because that connected me to a lot of people right away who were coming through the public theater for other productions uh, and gave me exposure to people I might not have met otherwise and networked with otherwise, uh, as well as touring personnel who came through there.
0: Yeah, joe's pub was and remains a pretty fabulous place whether you're you know sort of no matter what you're into they're gonna have a presentation about that at some point in the next month whether it's folk music or electronic music or yeah one woman show about whatever
2: yeah yeah no they, they had a huge range of uh of productions in there and that was due to the large number at the, i don't know if it's still the case i've been back there in probably almost 10 years now but uh they had a huge number of people promoting and booking the shows so that they were, you know, they each had their own kind of niche. They had two or three guys that were really good at concerts and two or three people that were really good at these, uh, up comedians and one person shows that did improv and impersonations. Uh, and then there were other people that were, uh, into the spoken word events and the poetry readings. And then there were other people who were more into the, the late night parties. Uh, so yeah, we had a, a quite a range of, of productions go on there so it was nice to be exposed to those and again in a somewhat experimental environment you know you could as long as you met certain minimum requirements for the show you could almost do do whatever you want as long as it was tasteful and and accurate and
0: then uh so so there you met uh, presenters you met other touring personnel
2: yeah met other musicians um other uh, tour managers production managers uh, sound engineers lighting designers lighting programmers uh, lighting technicians uh, not only at the the Joe's Pub space but also uh, because it was directly connected to the public theater all the productions that came through the public theater and the various theaters there as well uh, you know it could go in and sit behind somebody during a tech rehearsal and just say hi and, and see what was going on um, so it it was a great opportunity as as a young person just coming into the industry to to get a full dose of a lot of different facets and build a lot of experience very quickly.
0: And what came next?
2: After that, I was uh, actually, while I was doing that, I was also a lighting designer at uh, a dance club, Webster Hall, which was right up the street. So uh, I was there for six years as the the in-house guy. I did two years of Joe's Pub. Uh, that last year was an overlap between the two venues. And looking back on it, I'm not really sure how I survived that because I was working about 95 to 100 hours a week typical day. Fortunately, I lived right around the corner from both of them at the time. So I'd get out of bed, I'd wander over to Joe's pub at lunchtime. We'd do a load in and a sound check. At dinner, I'd walk up the street, fire up the club, get it ready for doors, leave the walk and look on, walk back down, do the show at Joe's pub, finish that and then go up and do, you know, 6 or 8 hours of dance music, go home, crash for 4 hours and get up and do it all again. Uh, but again, you know, you're exposing yourself to early on a huge number of, uh, experiences that, that, that serve you well later and it certainly serve me well later to, to get that much experience early on with so many different, uh, facets of the industry.
0: So speaking of club land, how were you involved in those systems? Were you just programming them? Did you design any systems? Uh,
2: I did do an overall redesign of the existing inventory in Webster Hall. So we didn't, we got a few new elements, but, uh, I was afforded the opportunity at one point to strip the rig out and completely redesign it again. I haven't been there in five or six years either. So I don't know how much of that still is in existence. Um, but some of the other clubs that I worked at uh, earlier the, in my college years, uh, I was just simply an operator and a programmer.
0: Because designing a cl- for a dance club is so – a dance club is very, very different from any of the other things that you do. Sure. What? How do you assemble a system for a, a nightclub when, when there's no attempt to create you – know, you're, you're not trying to create mood or time of day or a specific –
2: no, you're you're painting visual pictures to go along with the music. Um so you have to try and make people see the sound is how I was used to tell tell new operators. You have to make people see what they're hearing. Um and whatever that means to you specifically, sometimes that translates really well, other times not so much, but just keep moving forward and and, and go to your next look. Keep keep going, keep trying. Um yeah, it's a vi- it's a very different thing. So you set up uh, from a programming perspective, you set up a whole bunch of different options and the ability to get at them very quickly, so you can kind of mix and match uh, as you go it 's almost programming on the fly, but you're you 're doing it with playback instead of actually capturing uh, things live you You might capture things live on top of it and and tweak them, but you always want to have some sort of a base to to work from. Just as you would in in a concert as well, usually you have a base cue that you're 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 working around, so you have something to fall back to as as a bare minimum.
0: Do you primarily work in the air above people, on the dance floor, on flat surfaces around the dance floor, all yeah, of the above,
2: all of the above, anywhere you can 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 paint a picture, you paint a picture. Uh, and sometimes the the best thing there is to paint no picture. Uh, there was a guy that I worked with uh, early on who said the, the most important. Uh, color and lighting for clubs is black that's the most important color and it's true for for any good visual piece you need to balance the positive space with the negative space so you you give it all to people and then you take it all away and then you build pieces in and you take other pieces out and you build new pieces in on top of that and take other pieces out so hopefully there's some sort of a a progression as you go come up with a creative way of manipulating them in a way that you you wouldn't have necessarily thought of it'd be really cool if i could move them all over there all right let's see what happens when i point them all over there and you know do this with them and then if i point them all over there and do that with them, or scatter them all over the place this way and what what does that do what does it look like that looks like crap i won't ever do that again
0: (laughs) (laughs) i imagine that was really
2: great i gotta remember that trick I imagine that uh,
0: consoles like Hog 2 were uh, certainly a lot easier to do that sort of on the fly stuff with than some of the things that came before it.
2: That was a huge leap forward uh, getting into a console system that, you know, it was really incredibly innovative uh, in its day. You know, there were other consoles that did similar things to it, but none of them had the complete feature set that that one had in the compact package that it had and with the the easy interface, it wasn't a difficult desk to learn it was very easy and kind of intuitive it you know it was built by people who did what we did so you weren't learning a whole new uh let's say programming vocabulary uh a lot of the vocabulary was was very intuitive to to existing um uh, ways of working at the time it was a uh, a huge leap forward in in allowing us to uh to create
0: To think something and then be able to do it without having to...
2: Yeah, without having to go through a million tedious uh, programming steps. Or without having to have an
0: individual control surface for each kind of fixture.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there was that as well. So, you know, going back to the high-end rack mount controllers, um, there were certain clubs that, you know, had banks of these things. You had 12 or 14 of them. So to do a blackout, you had to hit what was the standby key at the time. You had to hit... 12 standby keys at the same time in rapid succession if you had them all going to go from a big look to a nothing look. So, you know, having a grandmaster that took everything down was great. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine
0: that. So uh, through all this, who were the people that you learned the most from? Who were your mentors?
2: That's a good question. I mean, I learned a a lot from a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. Um, A lot of the the programming was really self-taught. Again, when I started working with with moving light technologies and even the early uh, media server technologies, there was no so called experts uh, in the field. There were very few people who knew how to use them, so uh, it, it was it was all self taught. It's okay. Let's let's get in there and figure out what this does. Oh no, that doesn't do it. Okay, let's read the manual, or let's just keep pecking at it till till you can figure out how to how to make it work. Um, so. You know, to try and point to one person as as a mentor would be uh, pretty hard for me. I've learned a lot from everybody that I've ever worked with. Okay. I've, you know, try and at least take something something new away every time I do a show, be it be it on my own or be it with other people, even if it's, you know, from a completely different department. Uh, that's that's one thing I I learned very early on is anybody can have a good idea. It doesn't matter uh, who they are or what their supposed station is. And, and to be open to that and be, you know, not lose sight of, of the fact that, yeah, just because this person is a, a table buster doesn't mean they don't understand what a good look is. You know, they may not understand what we do and what needs to, to happen to achieve it, but it's good to keep keep it all in perspective and remember who your audience is.
1: What sort of advice would you give someone who is, say, just getting out of a theater BFA program right now and wanted to follow a sort of similar track that you did?
2: Uh, Go find another line of work because it sucks. (laughs) No. uh, (laughs) um, Take every bit of work you can find. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it seems uh, to be something you want to pursue or not. Uh, Don't limit yourself uh, and get out there and do everything you can. Learn everything you can from everybody. Sit behind a programmer if you have the opportunity to on a gig, even if it means you're not getting paid for the, the four hours after your call is done. Uh, don't be afraid to get in there and be uh, grunt labor. You know, move some moving lights around, learn how they're plugged up, learn how to build cable looms, learn, learn about all these, these pieces because those are things you need to take into consideration with your designs, especially if you wanna go into touring. You need to know how these things uh, are put together and torn apart and, and learn all the little tricks and the ins and outs of how to move things around on a day-to-day basis so that that would and keep learning don't don't ever think you're done learning there's there's so many new things coming uh every day you have to stay on top of it you're always going to be learning something new be it a new control surface a new moving light a new lamp technology a new uh method of rigging uh, you know a new piece of software for designing for content creation there's always something out there uh don't ever be satisfied with what you know and and sit back and rest which can be a bit intimidating at first but you do it long enough you get comfortable with it and it just becomes normal.
0: I think we're winding down in that case. Do you have any more thoughts for us Marty?
2: I don't think so thanks for for having me over
0: I appreciate it thanks very much
2: My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Casting Life Podcast Thank you to
0: Marty Postman remember to visit his website at retinalresonance.com. Thank you to Stephanie Schechter. You can find her on Facebook. Don't forget to visit us at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at podcastinglight, and on Facebook at castinglightpodcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for joining us. Have a good show.